0: Okay, so for several weeks now, we have been discussing ancient history. We've been looking at this week that unfolded 2,000 years ago, um, beginning with the time that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and then we've been sort of watching what happened on the days to come because we have such a tendency at this time of year to think about Good Friday and to think about Easter, but we don't always get it in perspective and we don't always just get this full picture of how in control of everything Jesus was during that week. One of the worst mistakes we can make is to, is to have this idea that Jesus was somehow a victim, and that's why the cross happened. The cross did not happen because, because of man's will. The cross happened because of God's will, which is so astonishing to us to think that a God would, would lay down the life of His only Son That Jesus would willingly go to the cross and die for us. It's an astonishing, astounding thing. If you're not still surprised by it, if you're not still amazed by it, then you need to think about it some more because because this weekend that's coming up and all that we're going to be looking at and celebrating is astonishing, it's powerful, it's eternity changing. So we've been looking at this week unfolding a couple of thousand years ago, but we've gone even further back to get perspective. We've gone back some 3,500 years to Egypt to a time when Israel has been held captive for some 400 years. And now God is answering their prayer and responding to their call. And Moses comes and challenges Pharaoh. And the, and the plagues unfold until finally we get to that night of the 10th plague. And God says to the people of Israel, listen, I want you to slaughter um, a spotless lamb. And I want you to take the blood of that lamb and I want you to put it on the header and the doorposts of the doors. And then as the angel of death comes and brings death, to the firstborn of every family in Egypt, he will pass over the houses that are under the blood of the lamb. And we get this first foreshadowing of what's going to be happening just some 1,500 years after that. Those who are under the blood of the lamb will be made safe, will be set free. And then go fast forward 500 years and now... It's a time of King David. King David is sitting on the throne of Israel. This is, without question, the the apex of Israel's history. This is the time when Israel is really at their best. This is the time when the rest of the world stands back and looks at Israel in awe and says, What a mighty God the God of Israel is. And this is where God is blessing them, and, and David is leading them to be a nation of worship. And the people are worshiping God, and they're enjoying fellowship with God, and God's blessings are being poured out upon them, and David is seated upon the throne. And there is a prophecy that comes at that time, we find it in 2 Samuel, that says that there's going to be a Redeemer, a Messiah, a Savior who is going to come, and He will come in the line of David, and He will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem, and His kingdom will have no end. He's going to be a Deliverer, a Redeemer, a Savior, and they're waiting and I bet you they wondered, you know how often it is as Christians, sometimes we think about, I wonder when the Lord's coming back. I, w- I wonder if it'll be in my lifetime. Sure, as, as every generation goes by, we say, boy, it must, be, it must be soon because how much worse could things get? And it's going to come soon and it's going to come soon. And I don't know when Jesus is coming. All I know is it looks like when you read the New Testament that the apostles probably thought He was coming in their lifetime. And time has gone by, right? And we keep wondering, when is He coming? When is He coming? When is He coming again? Well, they were wondering, when's He coming at all? And they kept waiting and waiting and waiting, and they went through this dark time. As a nation after the time of David, only two generations later, the nation is divided and there are wicked kings who are ruling and the nation has gone into idolatry and they've separated into Israel and Judah and both of those nations are essentially turning away from God and God is bringing punishment upon them and other nations are coming in and captivating the people and carrying them off and they're coming under the wrath of God and this goes by for a long, long time until finally about 2,700 years ago. There, there's a string of prophets that comes. And these prophets, they're, they're people like um, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah. Prophets that come and they preach. And not only do they call the people to repentance, but part of their story is that, yes, God has punished you for your sin, but the day is coming when He's going to send a Redeemer. And we begin to see these very specific um, prophecies about this Redeemer who's coming, where He will be born, what kind of lineage He'll have, how the people will treat Him, what will happen to Him, what He will say, where He will go, what He will do. All these things prophesied in great detail coming from these prophets. For about 300 years, we get a, just get a series of these prophecies. And then, after the last of the prophets, there's about 400 years of what appears to be silence from God. No more prophetic utterances, nothing. No one standing up and saying, thus saith the Lord. Not a word from God. Now picture that, 400 years. That's about roughly the same amount of time that they were captivated in Egypt. And when the people were held captive in Egypt, generation 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 after generation after generation after generation after generation after generation after generation goes by. And they are standing and wondering Is our God ever going to recognize what we're going through? Is He ever going to move on our behalf? By now, these people are just hearing stories that their great, 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 great grandparents knew about God, and they're holding on to their faith just by a thread, wondering if God's ever going to deliver them. That's what happened in Egypt. It happens again. No more prophetic utterances. 400 years wondering what happened to our God. Is He asleep? Is He dead? Has He given up on us? Is there going to be any more from Him? What about that Savior we heard so much about from the prophets? And the time goes by, 400 years of silence, until finally one comes in the name of the Lord, and His name is John the Baptist. And he's different than anybody. He, he, he reminds people of the old-time prophets. He, he goes out and he, he preaches... Repentance and he calls the people to repent and he talks about the wrath of God and he lives a completely different kind of lifestyle and nobody knows what to make of him. But when he preaches, there's power and the people keep coming forward and they're being baptized in the Jordan River for the repentance from their sins. And he says, Look forward because there's a Messiah coming. In fact, he's almost here until one day as John is down in the water baptizing him, along comes Jesus and John looks up and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now, finally, Jesus has come on the scene. It's about 2,000 years ago at this point. Now, Jesus shows up on the scene, and people are trying to figure out what to make of him. He, he kind of looks like he might be the Messiah. In fact, when people begin talking about him, they say, you know what? Um, I heard he was born in Bethlehem. Is that true? Because the Scripture says the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. That's the city of David, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I also heard that, that when he was a child, he was exiled to Egypt, and, and he, was, he was gone out of his country. Is that true? Because the Scripture says that the Messiah is also going to be exiled. Wow. And you know what else I heard? I heard that when he speaks, he speaks with power, the kind of power no one has ever heard before. And people begin to say, this might be him. He sure looks like the Messiah. And he talks like the Messiah. He calls himself the son of man. It's a, it's, a, it's a colloquialism that comes from the Old Testament, saying that this Savior is going to be both the Son of God and the Son of Man. And so Son of Man becomes one of his titles. He even calls himself the Son of David. And, and, and just to make, just to ratchet things up a notch, he uses that term, the term that you cannot use if you're a good Jew. He uses the term I am. It's the name of God. He uses the name of God to describe himself, that name of God, Yahweh. Or or maybe it's Jehovah. We don't know what it is because the name was so sacred that not only would they not speak it, but they wouldn't even write it. If you were going to write the name of God, you would just put the consonants and leave the vowels out. So we're left to guess at what the actual pronunciation of the name of God is, but we know the translation. The translation is I am, and you were never to speak those words, and Jesus did it again and again and again and again, and the people began to get stirred up, and they said, either this guy is a blasphemer." Who is worthy of being put to death, or maybe he's the one. He looks like the Messiah. He talks like the Messiah, and he even acts like the Messiah. You know, I heard about how he healed the sick. You remember that time when, when there was that demon possessed man and he cast a whole bunch of demons out of the one guy? You remember when he spoke to the wind and the waves, and even the wind and the waves obeyed him. He has authority over nature, he has authority over people, and when he speaks, oh, when he speaks, we can't get enough of it. His teaching is so profound and it's so unlike anything we've ever heard. He's not like one of our pastors who speaks holding the Word of God in his hand and referring to the authority of that Word. When he speaks, it's as though he's speaking the Word himself. It's as though he's the source of the authority. He's different, this guy. I wonder if he could be the one. And then just to ratchet things up again, he rides into town on the colt of a donkey on Palm Sunday. They have the big celebration, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the next day he cleanses the temple and then he takes on the religious leaders and debates them in the public square and makes them look foolish. And so he has made his splash on Passover week. The city is, is just filled with people, and Jesus rides in on a donkey, makes a splash. He, he uh, cleanses the temple, makes a splash. He confronts the religious leaders right in the temple courtyard and debates them publicly and blows them out of the water and makes a splash. And now you could barely control the buzz. It is just crazy in Jerusalem. What is he going to do next? Sunday, he did something amazing. Monday, he did something amazing. Tuesday, he did something amazing. And do you know what he did in Jerusalem on Wednesday? Absolutely nothing. According to the scripture, he didn't even come into town on Wednesday. He just stayed in Bethany. So there's this quiet day in town. Everybody's watching the city gate. Is he coming? Is he coming? He usually comes around this time. Everybody's watching and he doesn't come. But what he does on that Wednesday is he gives the priests an opportunity to gather together and make their plan. They've already by this point made contact with Judas. The plan is already underway about the betrayal and Jesus is just letting it simmer and he's letting them work it out, and he's letting them make their plan, and he stays out of town on Wednesday, and it's, it's known in the Gospels as the quiet day, Wednesday. But on Thursday, things are going to a new level. Now, that's ancient history. Let me tell you about some more recent history. The year is 1773. 1773. It's a little town called Boston, Massachusetts, little by our standards in those days, just a few thousand people living there, but it is an important city because that's where the big harbor is, where all the ships come in from Great Britain for the colonies. And as you know, if you paid any attention in history class in high school, or some of you are old enough to remember this perhaps, but as you know... Uh, things were getting tight. Things were getting tense. Things were getting difficult for the colonists. The taxes kept getting raised. There was this whole taxation without representation concern. They started having meetings in town halls where they were saying, what are we going to do about this? Maybe we should appeal to King George and ask him to be more reasonable. And they did appeal and they wrote letters and they sent uh, governors and liaisons back to the mother country only to find that things got worse and worse and worse. More taxes, more restriction. And then the Boston Massacre happened just a couple of years beforehand where at least three colonists were, were killed when the, when the British uh, military opened fire into a crowd. And now there's a tax on tea. Now, I don't know if we can wrap our minds around what it was like to give British people a tax on tea. But just imagine if there was a tax on Starbucks that would be a problem for us, right? I mean, Starbucks already costs like 100 bucks a cup. Let's just say they start charging more and it's all to go to some government who does nothing for us, doesn't support us and they're in a faraway land. And now as tea is being taxed, The people are becoming more and more concerned. They're organizing. They're getting into a group. They're wondering what's going to happen. And finally, they decide, we are not going to allow any more British tea into the colonies until they lift the tax. So they stop the ships in the harbor. They won't let them unload their cargo. And then uh, on December the 16th, 1773, a group of men led by people like Samuel Adams board the ships. At night, and they take the tea and they dump it into the harbor, sending a message to King George that says, we are not going to play by your rules. And they think this will finally get his attention. This will finally turn things around. But you know what it did? It caused him to stiffen his neck. And he said, I will teach those colonists who the king is and who the subjects are, and they will do things my way. And so the taxes increased, and the military presence increased, and their rights were diminished and they got pushed further and further toward war. And then on July 4th, 1776, under the leadership of people like John Adams and George Washington and Benjamin Franklin, they signed the Declaration of Independence, which really was a declaration of war. It was the beginning of the war that gave freedom and independence to the American colonies now known as the United States of America. Now, you say, well, thanks for the history lesson, Pastor, but I've already been to high school. Why did you tell me all that? I'm telling you all that because I want you to notice something. When you look in the history books and you say, what was the moment? Was there a moment where everything came to a head? Was there a moment where the movement began? The answer is yes, it was the day the tea was dumped into the harbor. The Boston Tea Party was the beginning of the movement, and now today, over 200 years later, we sit here enjoying the freedoms that we take for granted in our country because of that day and that small group of people who said, we are going to take a stand, and they dumped the tea into the harbor. When you look at the history, you go, that's what ratcheted up the whole thing. Maybe war could have been avoided. Maybe we would still be a British colony today. If it wasn't for that day, that's the day the movement began. It's amazing what can happen with the events of just one day when a movement begins. Now, let me give you another historical reference. The date is December 1st, 1955. There's a woman by the name of Rosa Parks. She has boarded a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. And there in Alabama, the, the Jim Crow laws are in full effect. And the law says that if you ride a public bus, the first 10 rows are reserved for white people and blacks have to sit in uh, the rows from 11 back. Now, contrary to what a lot of us think, Rosa Parks was not sitting in the wrong seat. She was sitting in the 11th row that day on her way home after a long day. But the problem is that the first 10 rows filled up And so the bus driver came back to her and told her, you're going to have to get up and go stand in the back so that this white man can sit in your seat. And Rosa Parks said on a whim, without having given it a moment's thought, she looked at the man and said, I'm not getting up. And Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat. And the police were called and she was arrested. And when she was arrested, that began a process because they decided that they were going to to boycott the buses in Montgomery, Alabama. And since over 70% of the riders of those buses were black, it was an absolute shot to the gut of the companies that owned the buses. And so this boycott went on for a year, and it was led by a young pastor who was fairly new to the area, and he was a part of an organization That was called the Montgomery Improvement Association, and the other members of that association asked them, would you lead this boycott, and would you begin this process of helping us stand up against this unfair law? And that pastor's name was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And Dr. King not only led the Montgomery bus boycott, but in so doing, he began a process where the the, the South began to be divided even more so than it had ever been. And eventually, the civil rights process began. And there were marches, and there were sit-ins, and there was uh, uh, nonviolence, and there were lunch counters that were taken over, and there um, there were demonstrations on campuses. All of these things happened. There was the march on Selma. And finally, there was Pastor, uh, Dr. King giving the I Have a Dream speech on the Mall of Washington. And we all look at that, and some of you remember it like it was yesterday, and others of you have read it about it in your history books. And we all look at it and go, wow, what an amazing movement began that day. Do you know when it began? It began when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat. She was not the first person to stand up against racism, but somehow that moment, that day, became the catalyst of a movement. It's not about a person giving up a seat. It's about the rights of all human beings to be recognized as human beings and treated with respect because they're human beings. And this movement took off because this woman was unwilling to give up her seat that day. It is amazing how the actions of one person on one day can start a movement that changes everything. Well, On the Thursday of Passover week, Jesus started a movement. You say, no, no, Pastor, the the crucifixion was on Friday. Yes, it was. The crucifixion is uh, unquestionably right at the apex of all of human history, the most important event that ever took place, especially if you, if you put the whole weekend together and you have the crucifixion and the resurrection together and you say, that event, Jesus' death and resurrection is the most significant event that ever took place in all of time. You're exactly right. You're 100% right if that's what you believe. But that's not when the movement began. Just like the movement did not begin when they signed the Declaration of Independence, just like the movement did not begin when Dr. King gave his I Have a Dream speech, the movement did not begin when Jesus hung on a cross. I think the, the, the catalyst moment of this movement took place on Thursday, and we're going to look at that together in our scriptures. So turn to John chapter 13, the gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. We've been looking at Mark's account of this up until now, but I think John gives us this picture that I don't want us to miss of what happens on Thursday. So take a minute, turn to John chapter 13, and we're going to pick up the story beginning in verse 1. John 13, 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come and that He would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside His garments, and taking a towel, He girded Himself. Then He poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which He was girded. And so He came to Simon Peter, and He said to him, "'Lord, do you wash my feet?' Jesus answered and said to him, "'What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter.' Peter said to him, "'Never shall you wash my feet.' Jesus answered him and said, "'If I do not wash you, you have no part with me.' Simon Peter said to him, "'Lord, then, wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head.'" Peter always had a better idea, didn't he? Always. And I always point this out with Peter because I relate to him so well. It's like God, God just has the most simple instructions for us. He has the most simple things for us to do. And he comes and he says, hey, Doug, I want you to do this. And I go, oh, Lord, I'm glad you mentioned that because I've been thinking about this. I have a whole plan. Don't worry, I got it covered. I've always got the better idea. And it's so hard for me to just stop and go, you know what? If Jesus says it, I'm just going to do it. If Jesus says it, I'm just going to believe it, and I'm not going to argue with him. Well, Peter was always the one to correct Jesus. He was always the one to question Jesus. He was always the one to share his own better idea with Jesus. And he says, you're never going to wash me. And then he says, but if I don't wash you, then uh, you have no part of me. He goes, oh, well, why didn't you say that? In that case, wash me from head to toe. And can't you just see Jesus just shaking his head going, oy vey, Peter... Can you just do what I tell you? He says to him, look what he says. Pick it up in verse 10. He said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Do you notice that? For so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak to all of you, I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who receives whomever I send receives Me, and He who receives Him, He who receives Me receives Him who sent Me. Don't miss that last verse. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. What does this have to do with anything he's just said or done? What, he's not talking about sending people. He's not talking about receiving people. He's talking about washing feet. And, and he says this, and I think it's very, very important that he says this. He says, listen, I'm going to be sending you. What he's saying here essentially is, listen, I'm trying to encourage you guys and teach you guys so that when I send you, you will represent me. Because whoever receives the one who I send receives who? Me. He's saying, I'm not going to be with you forever, but I'm going to send you in my name. That's a very important point to miss because this is a strategic moment. Jesus was about to go to the cross. He knew that He was about to end His time on earth with His disciples. He knew that He was sending them out and that the future of the church would run through them, that the Holy Spirit would come into their hearts and then He would be the one who is with them at all times, even though Jesus is no longer physically there. And so what does he do knowing all of that? In this strategic moment, the scripture says, he gets up from dinner, strips off his clothes, picks up a towel in a basin and begins to wash their feet. Now, you've heard this story before, right? You know about this. And you may have read through it thinking, well, this is just a little anecdote. This is just a little small part of the story. If you think this is just an anecdote, this is a small part of the story, then you think Rosa Parks was unimportant in the civil rights movement. This is the moment. And I'm going to show you why and I'm going to show you how. This is how He intends to start His movement. You see, a movement is not simply when a person performs an act. A movement is when the world changes because everyone acts differently after that point. And Jesus is beginning a movement. It's one thing for Jesus to wash His disciples' feet. I mean, we look at that and go, that's kind of gross, and if you don't understand how this works. You, you know, they walk in sandals on dirt roads, and so their feet are always dirty and sweaty and hot and stinky. That's just the bottom line. And when you picture the Last Supper, maybe like a lot of people, you picture sort of the European view of that. You, you picture Da Vinci's picture with the table and everybody seated around the table, but that's not at all how it was. This is Asia. This is the Middle East. They, they ate with a table that was very low to the ground. And so the table was maybe a foot off the ground and there were pillows around the table. And the way that you would eat would be that you would lean here on your hip and your left shoulder and you would eat with your right hand as you were laying down and your feet would be stretched out to the right and then there would be someone here and then there would be someone there around the table. So your feet would be like right behind the head of the person two people down from you. And so everybody is eating with a pair of stinky feet next to their head, okay? I just want you to picture that. So... When they came into the room, the custom was always that the host would either himself or he would provide a servant in most cases who would wash your feet. You would walk in and he would just strip off your sandals and wipe down your feet and dry them so that when you entered the the home, you were greeted and you were welcomed and you didn't have this I'm eating next to stinky feet issue. And when they walked into this borrowed room, there was no one there to wash their feet for whatever reason. There was a basin, there was a pitcher, there was a towel, but there was no one there to wash their feet. And you can imagine as each one walked in thinking he was going to stop and have his feet washed, he must have looked to where the servant would have been, seen the basin, the pitcher, and the towel and went, huh, what a loser this guy is. He provides no servant for us and he walks right past. And they all walk in that way and they all sit down and they're about to eat the Passover meal with feet right next to their head. And Jesus stands up takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around his waist, goes and bends down and begins one by one to wash their feet and to dry them with the towel that's wrapped around him. And you can imagine as he's pouring the water, that's a couple of the disciples are beginning to think, oh, this is embarrassing. Why didn't I, you know, probably Peter is thinking to himself, I could have just made Andrew do this, (laughs) you know? Or maybe Nathaniel, he never hardly does anything. Let's have Nathaniel do this, right? And they're, they're probably thinking that now Jesus is like showing us up. He's embarrassing us because none of us washed anybody's feet. And this doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem appropriate. That's why Peter says what he says. He's like, okay, God, I get it. I get it, Lord. I understand what you're trying to say. Don't wash my feet. It's, it's degrading. It's not appropriate for the Lord to wash feet. So this is happening at Jesus' washing feet. But He has a lot more in mind here because you look at this and you go, okay, this is degrading. This is a bummer. Why does Jesus have to do this? We have to understand He knew exactly what was going to happen next, right? He knew what the following hours were going to be for Him. He knew He was going to the cross. It says so right at the beginning, knowing that His hour had come, right? He knew He knew that this was going to be the least degrading thing that was going to happen to him over the course of the next 24 hours. He knew. And so he's bending down with a whole different perspective and he's washing their feet. But he had a lot more in mind here than just washing their feet. He's calling them to become the kind of men who will stop at nothing to serve other people. He's beginning a movement. He's beginning a movement of people who love others more than they love themselves. He is entrusting the gospel into the hands of men who will be willing, although they've been given great power and authority through the Holy Spirit, to constantly serve others and not insist upon being served themselves. Look what it says in verse 13, if you're not sure why Jesus did this. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet... You also ought to wash one another's feet, for I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Just as those men dumping tea into the harbor were giving an example to the other colonists saying, Listen, we all need to stand up against tyranny. Just as Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat and choosing even to be arrested and go to jail in order to make a statement, she was not thinking, I will turn the South around. She was thinking, I want other people to see that it's okay to stand against injustice. And she did it so that the movement began. Jesus is setting an example. He's not just committing an act, he's starting a movement. And he's teaching his disciples what Christianity is all about. We skipped over this because we can't preach on everything. But, but this, the, just the day before, the last conversation he had with the Jewish leaders, they came to him and they said, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responded, said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, that you will love your neighbor as yourself. And now he's modeling it for him. This is an object lesson. Jesus is saying, I've told you I love you. When you see what I'm about to do for you, maybe you'll understand. But I'm telling you, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. I will serve you because I love you. And you know what else? I love my father. I love Him with every ounce of my being, and I will serve my Father as I lay down my life for people. You cannot separate those two commands. That's why Jesus put it all in one. If you're going to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you have to love the people He loves. And if you're going to truly love people unselfishly, you're going to have to do it from the power provided through the relationship you have with God. And so He's modeling this for them. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. The cross is coming, but that's not where the movement began. Let's go back to that upper room. Jesus is on his knees scrubbing sweaty, dirty feet, the feet of his servants, the feet of his followers. Now, I want you to get the picture in your mind. I want you to get a mental image. Jesus kneeling down, scrubbing their feet. You got the picture? Now, can you imagine Caesar doing that? Can you imagine this in Caesar's palace, that, that his servants come up to him and he says, hey guys, I'll tell you what, you sit in the throne, I'm going to get down here and wash your feet. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine any king doing that? Can you imagine Pontius Pilate, the governor of that region, doing that? No, Pontius Pilate took a basin and some water and he washed his own hands for his own good and he said, none of this is on me. Can you imagine a leader, a king? Can you imagine anyone in authority with wealth and power getting on their knees and scrubbing the feet of the people who are supposed to be their servants? There's nobody like Jesus. See, His kingdom is not of this world. Jesus came to serve and to save. But when I picture Him doing this, I go, wow. How did He bring Himself to do it? You know, one of the biggest reasons why people in authority and leadership don't serve others is because they're afraid. They're afraid that it's a sign of weakness. They're afraid to be taken advantage of. They're afraid that people will lose respect for them. They're afraid. And so instead, they puff out their chest and they say, you will serve me, you will serve me. And don't look at me like you can't imagine that because all of us do it ourselves. We want others to serve us. It's so hard to say, I'm going to lay down my life for you, especially if I don't love you, especially if you're my enemy. But what does the Scripture say? That while we were yet enemies of God, He sent His Son to die for us. Would you do this, this foot washing for your enemies? How did He bring Himself to do it? How does a king humble himself like that in front of his subjects? How do he bring himself to stoop down into the dirt and wipe away their sweat? I think there's some key words that are going to help us understand this movement back in verse 1 through 4. Chapter 13, verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father. Make a note of that. He knew where He was in history. He knew that His hour had come. And most importantly, He knew what came after that hour, that He was going to depart to be where? With His Father. He knew. It doesn't say He hoped, He thought, He wished, He he wondered. He knew. He knew where He had come from. He knew where he was going. It goes on, verse 2, During the supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, okay, He knew that he had all power and authority. The Father had given all things into his hands. And when you read someone knew that they had all power and authority, do you expect the next line to be, So they began to serve others? with all power and authority, knowing who He is. He's the Son of the Most High God. He is the one who is 100% God and 100% man. He knows who He is, and look what it says, and that He had come forth from God and was going back to God. He got up from supper and laid aside His garments, taking a towel, He girded Himself, and He washed their feet. He knew who He was, He knew from whence He had come, and He knew where He was going. And because He was so confident in all of that, He didn't have to be afraid. When you know who you are in Christ, when you know the promises of God, what can mere man do to you? He wasn't afraid to serve people because he knew who he was, where he was from, and where he was going. He knew for sure that after he endured the cross, he would be seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, keep your finger in John 13, but I want you to skip over to the book of Hebrews toward the back of your New Testament. And I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 12, because the writer of Hebrews gives us some perspective on this, beginning in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Why did He endure the cross? How was He able to endure the shame? For the joy set before Him. He knew. He knew that He would be seated at the right hand of the Father, the appropriate seat for the only begotten Son of God. He knew. And because He knew where He had come from, and He knew where He was going, He could not only endure the cross, but He could serve and wash feet He had no doubts about who he was or where he was going or about what happens next. He knew, and that's what made him great. He was able to fearlessly serve because he didn't have anything to be afraid of. What can mere man do to me? And I believe, I talked about starting a movement. I believe that's why the apostles were able to live the lives that they lived in the book of Acts that they actually lived for other people, that they actually served God by serving people no matter what it would cost them. And most of them were martyred for their faith. Why were they able to do that? Because they had already laid down their lives, they had nothing left to lose. Why was Peter able to speak boldly to the Sanhedrin when they held in their hands the power to destroy him? It was because he knew that they didn't have the power to destroy him because his eternal life was guaranteed. He knew where he was going. Why was Paul able to go into city after city knowing that he was going to face oppression and, and um, torture and beatings and be thrown out of town? Because he had already laid down his life. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me And the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. So he'd already died to self. His old nature was already crucified. He had nothing to lose. Guys, don't miss the point because we are the movement. He said, I've done this to give you an example so that you will follow me, so that you will love unconditionally, so that you will serve those who you think ought to be serving you, so that you will love the Father so much that you will do anything that brings Him glory. And so that brings us all the way forward in the timeline to this moment in this day as we sit in this room and we have to answer this question, am I a follower of Jesus? Not do I believe in the cross and the resurrection, not do I believe in the doctrines of the church, am I a follower of Jesus? Am I a part of the movement? Am I going to live my life in service of God and others no matter what it costs me? Or am I going to live by fear of being taken advantage of or thought less of? Am I going to be a part of the movement? Am I a follower of Jesus? And if you're not laying down your life every day, let me just ask you, why not? What are you afraid of? What can you lose? You're a child of the King. The promise has been made and, that, and the Scripture says that God holds you in His hand and nothing shall separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what are you trying to protect yourself from? We're supposed to be a part of the movement. There's a movement going on, my friends. It is a life-changing, eternity-giving, world-altering movement. It's called the Church of Jesus Christ. The Church of Jesus Christ. Those who say, I will stand for Him and serve others in His name. Those who say, I will insist on the privilege of serving rather than the privilege of being served. Those who say, I carry the gospel message, which is a message of loving God with all my heart and loving my neighbor as myself. And I will do anything to get that message across. You guys We are a part of the movement. For generation after generation after generation, followers of Jesus have been washing feet. Whatever it takes to love people as Christ loved us. And so let me just ask you to get practical and get inside your own head for a second and say, how am I doing at loving my spouse, for example? How am I doing at loving the members of my own household? How am I doing at loving my coworkers or the students with whom I sit in class? How am I doing at loving, are you ready, my enemies? Am I ready to wash their feet too? Because that's the movement. That's what Jesus has called us to be about. Yes, He went to the cross, and yes, He rose from the grave, but the movement began on Thursday when He said, I'm giving you an example to follow, and the world will never be the same if you follow. May the movement always continue with us.